Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I get to walk about 10 blocks east of my office to meet with Carrie Ruttenberg, who is the author of new book, Images with Impact, Design and Use of Winning Trial Visuals. Uh, It's a really interesting new book on how to use data visualization uh, for lawyers, uh, especially in trial settings. And I'm always interested in how different fields are using data visualization. So I met up with Carrie at her office here in DC and um, we chatted about the book and what it's like to present information and data to a jury. So here is my interview with Carrie. So I'm here with Carrie Ruttenberg, author of the book Images with Impact, Design and Use of Winning Trial Visuals. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, great to chat with you. Great to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you about a book of data visualization for lawyers. Right. Um, not as all these different fields. Everybody's excited about data visualization. Um, could you start by telling folks a little bit about yourself and how you came to say, I want to write a book on data visualization? I'm assuming you weren't defending clients because they're making bad data viz. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. no. There's been no data visualization prosecution that okay, I'm aware okay. of yet. All right, good. All right. Um, no, I, I, so I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer. Um, I've been trying cases for about 20 years and uh, have a, a bit of a visual and psychology background. And so this was sort of an interesting niche that I didn't know existed before I started practicing. Right. Uh, found it absolutely fascinating and realized that there was an appreciation for the need for better visuals amongst my legal colleagues, right. uh, but no idea how to do it. And so I started teaching lawyers about 13 years ago, got some fabulous feedback from those programs and even people who would come multiple times um, to sort of refresh their their learning. Um, I started having people say, what if there's no budget? Can you teach some graphic design? Mm -hmm. And so with the huge caveat that I am not a trained graphic designer, and I strongly encourage my colleagues to hire those folks Mm -hmm. when, uh, as I do, when there's money in the budget. There's not always money in the budget. And so I wanted to be able to help folks improve their own visuals and, frankly, communicate more effectively and efficiently with others and eventually decided there ought to be a book um, that's really geared toward lawyers. Um, The funny thing is now one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get on the book is from people who say, you know, this isn't just for trials, (laughs) Uh, which is a good thing that they recognize that. But as you, your publisher probably told the same thing, if you write a book for everybody, nobody's going to read it. Correct. So you pick that group. So paint a picture for us of what it means to visualize data for a lawyer. Like my image of a courtroom is, you know, law and order. Like really that, <laughs> Where they it. don't use a lot of visuals. They don't use a lot yeah. of visuals. Yeah. So, so paint a picture for us of what it's like to be in the courtroom and showing visuals. Is it big TVs? Is it projectors? Like walk us through it. Um, it has evolved tremendously over the years, as you might imagine, but it is still highly dependent on the courtroom. Um, some jurisdictions are known for being more high tech. Mm-hmm. You'll see that a lot when there is a newer courthouse, a courthouse that has been renovated. Usually they incorporate more mm-hmm. technology. Um, so I have been in some courtrooms, uh, and I'm thinking of one in particular that was a four month long trial in a federal court mm-hmm. that was considered a high tech courtroom. And at one point, I sat back and I counted, and there were 19 monitors that were <laughs> being used. Right. And, and that was because every single juror had a monitor essentially oh, at really? their seat in the jury box. There was one at the witness uh, box. Yep. 
the judge had one, the clerk had one. Right. Each of the counsel tables had multiple because it was a multi-defendant trial. Um, and then there were two large screens because it was a highly public trial that were aimed at the audience mm -hmm. that was watching. So that's one extreme. Then I've been in other courtrooms where there is basically nothing provided, so you have to bring in what you need. And I've had to bring in um, projectors and screens and laptops and cords, mm -hmm. get permission from the court. Usually it requires a court order. A lot of times you can't just bring equipment into a, a courthouse like that. So it really runs the gamut. And the takeaway is you have to know in advance what your courtroom is going to be like. Right. You've got to plan for it. I tell people you should sit in the jury box when there's nobody in the courtroom so that you have a sense of what they can see, whether there are obstructions, mm -hmm. where you're going to need to be showing visuals to witnesses. Layouts of courtrooms differ. Um, so it, it's pretty easy to figure it out. You just need to go in advance and um, determine what you're going to need and how you're going to need to show it. When you're speaking, do you get to set up the space as you like? So you get to put the projector where you want it and able to walk around? I mean, how does it, when you're setting things up, like what are the, what are the I'm sure there are restrictions. Yeah. Like what are the rules and restrictions? It's a, that's a really great question. And it, and it depends a lot this time on the judge okay. and how much the judge wants you walking around. Right. I am five foot one. I hate podiums. I hate them because I feel like a head. Right, right. Um, and so when I'm giving a talk in any other setting, I do not use a podium. I can't stand them. Um, very often in courtrooms, you have to stand behind the podium. So usually I, I migrate a little bit to, to the side, side yeah. because I really can't stand them. But what I tell folks is think about ways that you can engage with the jury that allow you to get from behind the podium. So one of those ways is to go a bit low tech. Mm -hmm. And if you can combine using um, courtroom uh, presentations that involve monitors and screens to presentations that might involve, for example, a, uh, an enlarged foam board mm -hmm. where you can actually walk that across and show it to the jury, that's a great way to get out from behind the podium. And I've done that before yeah. in a trial where I had to be behind the podium except when I was showing one of those visuals. Right. So that, that's kind of one way to beat the system in a sense. <laughs> Interesting. Now, again, my experience with courtroom relegated to TV and movies. So when you are speaking, you're presenting information, um, are you often interrupted by opposing counsel, by the judge? And so how do you, if you're, if you're making a case, if you're making an argument, you're building up this, this momentum, let's just say, right. as you're showing things, you know, how do you deal with these interruptions that are Different, right, than like the kind of talks that I give to a bunch of researchers. The interruptions are, I have a question about right. this, right? Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it, and, and they can't ask questions. The jury can't, right. which is so frustrating, yeah. right? Because that's if they were allowed to, then you'd know exactly where you need to yeah. course correct or, right. or where their heads are and, and address it. So you raise two issues. Um, one of them is, is the question issue. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I design my visuals knowing that that's one of the most unique aspects of presenting to a jury. In pretty much any other setting, even if people aren't raising their hand and asking questions, you can pause and try to elicit them. Right. Or you can incorporate something interactive in the program that you're delivering to make sure that everyone's on the same page with you. And you cannot do that in a jury setting. You cannot interact with the jury like that. Now, some judges will allow jurors to submit questions, yeah. uh, which they, they don't show that on law and order, but the little behind the scenes yeah. is that usually what happens is 
the uh, jury will have a question. They'll write it down. They'll give it to the foreperson, mm -hmm. who will then give it to the judge, who will then, this is the part that's not on law and order, without the jury present, call counsel into the room. And then we will have a discussion with the court about whether we're going to answer it and how we're going to answer gotcha. it. Okay. And then it ends up getting answered usually by the judge through some kind of, if not scripted, then um, you know something that the judge has sort of cleared with the lawyers. They don't all do that, and yeah. sometimes that can lead to appeals if they say something that they yeah. shouldn't have. Right. Um, but the other issue that you raise is a distinction, I think, when you were talking about the interruptions right. between your opening statement and closing argument and then the trial itself. Okay. With opening statement and closing argument, that's what's much more akin to the presentations that you and I give to friendlier audiences. Right. And there are typically not many, if any, interruptions. Okay. And in part, it's because um, there's a bit of a professional courtesy. Uh, it doesn't look very good to the jury if you're objecting during an opening statement and a closing argument. It absolutely happens. It's happened to me. Um, and then you just kind of have to roll with it and then get back on track. Where the interruptions come up more, of course, is where there are objections during testimony. And that may be where you have an expert witness on the stand, uh, like you. My husband's an economist, but oh, okay. he does it right. in the context of um, uh, consulting a lot with lawyers and, and testifying as an expert witness. Fact witnesses, I'm often using visuals with. And if there are interruptions, uh, they're the same interruptions that are happening throughout the trial mm -hmm. with non-visual testimony. So the jury ends up getting used to them, and you, again, have to kind of roll right back in with the presentation. Right. Um, do the things that you talked about in the book, and we should talk specifically about the book, but before we, before we do that. So the things you talk about in the book, do they vary a lot by the type of law that someone's practicing? I would say they do to the extent that certain areas of law are more typically presented to juries, whereas other well, areas are more typically bench trials right. uh, where the judge is making the decision. If you're in a legal field where there's more arbitration work, for example, then sometimes it might be a panel of judges mm -hmm. and it might be in a setting that's not a courtroom. Okay. Um, so to that extent, just like you have to consider your audience for any presentation, mm -hmm you need to consider the differences between presenting to a jury versus a judge. Right. Let's talk about the book specifically. Sure. Um, do you want to walk us through the book? Because this, in some ways, it covers like the full gamut. It's not uh, a book just on presentation skills. It's not a book just on data viz. It's sort of the whole communications about presenting in a trial. That's right. And that was actually my goal with right. the book. Um, it, it really was. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer. I, I, I try cases. I don't write books. Right. And so um, really what I wanted to do is create a resource that at any stage uh, a lawyer could look to it, turn to it, and, and have something helpful. And I should, I should caveat it again that um, since the book has come out and I've been doing a lot more presentations, mm -hmm. the audience is broadening. It, right. it really isn't just lawyers. It's certainly not just trial lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've been talking with expert witnesses and uh, professors, marketing executives, uh, folks who sort of understand that professional presentations are a little different than advertising campaigns. Yep. Uh, and so it has provided a lot more um, breadth of, of information for those folks. But in terms of walking through the book, I really, I view this as uh, sort of four categories of information. And I divided the book into four parts. In the beginning, it, part one is really why all this matters. Why do we need to think about using visuals? We 
are starting to recognize that we need it. But I think when you start looking at the statistics and the studies that have been done, both in the jury context and outside, and you see the dramatic impact that effective visuals have on communication, it sort of scares people into, oh my gosh, I really need to think about this. So the first part is why it matters. The second part are what I believe are some of the most common visual tools that are used, not just in the trial setting, but in any professional setting. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's going to encompass things like timelines and charts and graphs and photographs and illustrations and diagrams. And what I was trying to show here is the typical kind of visual tool, what works and why it works, and what doesn't work Mm -hmm. and why that doesn't work. And to help me do that, uh, as I, I know you're well aware, I used help. And I had four different graphic design firms who helped create some of these visuals. I wanted to show uh, different styles, different approaches to the same concept. Uh, In some spots in the book, I actually have different design firms that have done a design for the same concept. Yeah. Uh, Because I don't want people thinking that there's only one right way to do it. Right. And that can become paralyzing. Then part three is graphic design. And as I was saying before, that came from folks saying to me as feedback to the live presentation, can you just show us how to do some of this stuff right, right. and what really matters? And so for a graphic designer, this is really, really basic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's but for the rest of us. For the rest of us yeah. who, who weren't trained in graphic design, it's, it's concepts like alignment and proximity, color and white space and contrast, mm-hmm. um, that when I started learning about those concepts, my visuals dramatically improved. And so I passed those along. And then the last part of the book is really strategy, mm-hmm. um, you know, strategy for working with designers, strategy for uh, getting started, strategy for using the graphic designs, um, presenting information in court and, and when to use high versus low tech. Uh, and then I, of course, I, I love talking about misleading visuals. So yes. there's a whole chapter about misleading visuals <laughs> and what can go horribly wrong. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, as I'm as I was reading the book, I was thinking about one of my first presentations to a room of lawyers and talking about the hazards, as it were, of pie charts and saying, look how you can't really figure out the exact value associated with this slice in this pie chart. And and the response was, well, sometimes we don't want the judge or the jury, the opposing counsel to figure out what the exact value is. And that was, um, that was interesting sort of response. I would say if you're designing or picking a design to mislead, that's a problem. Yeah. If instead, though, the point that you're really trying to make is not the exact value, but something more conceptual, I don't have any problem with that. And I would say that's one of the other areas that um, lawyers need to design for more than they do. I Mm -hmm. think we all recognize the need for data visualization. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean we're good at it, but we recognize the need for it. What not everybody really recognizes is the importance of visualizing concepts, what I call turning themes into pictures. And it doesn't mean you know, having a picture of two hands shaking, yeah. right? It's something that is not trite. It is unique. It is catered to the particular point that you're trying to make for that particular case. Mm-hmm. Now, you, now, you talk about photographs. One of the most interesting things that I found in the book was this Rule 403. Which, well, I'm going to let you explain it because I was I was fascinated uh, by this rule and this whole section in the in the book about 
you know, specific things that obviously I would have no experience with. So can yeah, you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think Rule 403 is um, one of the most important distinctions between presenting in a trial setting and presenting anywhere else. Yeah. Really anywhere else. Um, when you talk about photographs, people often say, and they're right, that photographs are attention-getting and appeal to emotion and um, have all of these advantages over other types of visuals. That's great, but there is a rule. It's it's Rule 403 and the Rules of Evidence. Uh, that's a, It's a federal rule, but states typically have either adopted it or have their own uh, similar rule. And in a nutshell, what it says you can't do mm-hmm. is introduce something into evidence in a trial or show something, even if it's not being introduced, if its prejudicial value outweighs its probative value. Uh, if it is unfairly prejudicial is another way that it's right. framed. And one of the ways that you would violate Rule 403 is if you are using a visual or a piece of evidence that is by design trying to appeal to emotion. So something that would be a fantastic visual in another setting because of its appeal to emotion would likely be affirmatively excluded from a trial. I mean, it's interesting because there's a few examples that you write about. And the first few examples make me wonder a little bit because it's, you know, it's sort of not a stock photo, but sort of a standard photo you might get, but it has a picture of a person on it. Um, and the and the advice that you give in here is, you know, instead of having the person standing, you know, the person's face, you know, you get a different picture where there's a person in the background, but you don't may not see their face. But then they're the ones that are a little more egregious where there's a there's a whole discussion here about like basically a mugshot where uh, the you know the opposing counsel wrote the word guilty across it. Um, so how do you, I guess, balance? The, the one where you write the word guilty seems obvious to me. Um, but the, uh, the first case seems like there's a, there's a, line, there's a fine line there, right? Sure. And, and the point with respect to the faces is not so much Rule 403 mm-hmm. prejudice mm-hmm. as if it's distracting attention. Mm-hmm. Our eyes are naturally drawn to faces. And so if the image of the person is not really the point of the visual, if mm-hmm. that's not really the main thing that you're talking about, then... It can be affirmatively distracting if you've got a picture of someone's face next to what you're trying to talk about. Oh, uh, so I make a few suggestions in the book, yeah. as, as you point out, for how to address that um, and, and basically not have the face be the focal point. Right. Um, really, the rest of it is about the tone of the photograph. So if you have a, an image of, um, let's say, in a family law case, and there's an image of a little boy on the screen that's pretty neutral, you'll mm-hmm. probably get away with that. If it's an image of a little boy crouched in a corner crying, what is it that you're trying to say about that? That might be a perfectly appropriate visual for a marketing campaign or something like that. But in a trial setting, what is the point of that visual? And frankly, that's where Mm -hmm. I advise folks to always start thinking about their visuals. It's it's really two questions. Mm -hmm. What's the point? And what do you need on the slide or the enlarged board or whatever to convey that point? Yeah. And then you design the slide around the point around that the you're point. trying to make. It's the same thing for data visualization as for thematic visualization. Right. Um, it's really, it's just really interesting. Uh, you had mentioned earlier about about tools, and so I'm curious about the tools that your colleagues use when they are making slides or visuals. And also, is there a movement in the legal field towards bigger and more data, and how does that change how lawyers work with data, other skill sets that are needed in in large firms that maybe weren't needed 10, 15 years ago? 
Well, in terms of the tools that we use, I certainly find that most lawyers that I work with um, are using PowerPoint, Keynote, software like that. Yep. Um, you know, if you need to do something that requires a more sophisticated software in design or something, they're, they're hiring. Yeah. Uh, I do. I, that's, I, I don't know how to use those right. programs. I, I'm good with PowerPoint. I'm not as good as a designer with PowerPoint. I hear you. Um, <laughs> and it's taken a lot of time. And yeah. I enjoy it and, and practice. Um, most do not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to just start with PowerPoint, I mean, you know what's coming out of that, right? Yeah. It's the templates and yep. the bullet points. Absolutely. And, and, you know, maybe the swirly templates. The swirly templates. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully not swirly text, but swirly right, right. templates, <laughs> right. which you can do. Right. Um, but, you know, that's, that's really um, the level that most of us are at. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why the really basic graphic design concepts that I cover in the book and that I teach in the seminars help a lot because mm -hmm. when that's the level that you're starting from, you've got a lot of room to improve and you can improve very, very quickly with just a few tips. Right. Um, so that, that's really what I would say about, you know, what folks are using. Yeah. Yeah. Don't remember the second part. The second part was about, about changes in data. Oh. Um, and now maybe this isn't your particular area, but it's it just curious to me because the graphs in the book, like you mentioned, they're timelines they are flow diagrams, it's line charts and bar charts. But I wonder, uh, and I'm sure there are legal cases where there's, you know, big data. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, and so in those cases, you know, I, I guess really the question is, in cases where they're using big data, yes. are there, there more interactive types of visualizations? Not interactive like the jury clicks on or anything. Are lawyers trying to show these sort of bigger data sets visualize these data sets in, in, in sort of different, kind of more modern ways? I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, typically in cases where there are complexities that involve data, mm -hmm. and, and, and there's a lot of them, obviously, and, and I've been involved in, in a number of them, usually we end up having an expert witness who's involved mm -hmm. because you have to get that into evidence somehow. Right. And it can't come in through the lawyer. Through the lawyer, right. So there needs to be some, some witness, some some way to get that before the jury that complies with the evidentiary rules. Right. And so very, very frequently, it's an expert who is not only an expert in interpreting the data, but is often an expert in manipulating the data. Gotcha. Um, so our regression analyses, there's going to be an economist mm -hmm. um, who is testifying. And so what I think people are, including the economists, the consultants, um, what I think people are starting to realize is we need a more effective way of presenting that information and that enter data visualization. Yeah. And so usually for me, just because I'm a little bit further along than most of my lawyer colleagues, right. um, I will take a look at what the uh, economist has given me and I'll say, that's great. We obviously need that. That's going to be in your report. Now we need to completely change how that's being presented to the jury. To the jury. Right. And so I'll brainstorm with the economist, sometimes with my graphic consultant, um, you know, from a trial graphics firm, um, they've done tons of these. They've done way more trials than the lawyers have because they just are going from trial to trial to trial. And so they may have seen an effective way of visually demonstrating that same type of data to a jury in other cases, and we'll put our heads together and figure out a better way to display it. Yeah, that is really interesting. And so when you have that conversation, in your experience, when you've had that conversation with your experts, do they push back? Do they do they do they get like when you're talking to people? Do you do you just hand them a copy of your book and be like, <laughs> here you go, read this first, and now you understand why I want to do this other approach? Um, the only pushback 
which is usually very short-lived because then they quickly understand we're on the same page, yeah. is uh, push back to make sure that we're not misrepresenting the data. Sure, okay. Um, you know, there's, I think folks who aren't as deep in the weeds on this topic will often say to me, yeah, I get it. The, the idea is to simplify. Mm-hmm. That's not, I never say that. Yeah. Because sometimes complexity is the very theme that you want to convey. My goal is to clarify. Right. And so as soon as the expert recognizes that I'm not looking to simplify in any kind of misleading way, and by the way, in our case, the fact that what you're displaying is complex is really important. Right. And I want the jury to understand that the complexity is inherent to the process that you're describing or the nature of the data. It's not complexity because we couldn't figure out a clear way to show it. Mm -hmm. And so once they understand we're on the same page with that and we have the same goal, then we really are working toward the same thing, right. um, ultimately presenting the information in a way that's clear and understandable to the jury. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, I love seeing and hearing about different fields using visualization. So um, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Um, and thanks so much for the book. I'll make sure that people know about <laughs> it. Um, so, Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really interesting. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk about this topic <laughs> yes, with somebody else who uh, <laughs> appreciates it just as much. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning into this week's episode. If you have comments or questions, uh, please do let me know. I'll put a bunch of links to Carrie's work and to her book, Images with Impact, on the website. So until next week, this has been the Policy Biz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 